Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to talk about Christian worship music. This is an important topic for Christians to consider, and so Aaron, let's chat about this. Why did you choose this subject for today? Well, in the 1970s, I was being obviously raised in a church that was very keen on enforcing a cappella music only. So for in the, in the church I was in, we did not have musical instruments. We did not have planned worship music. We did not have worship leaders. Everyone brought a small hymn book in their pocket, and as a person felt, quote-unquote, led, they would stand and they would introduce a song and we'd sing a cappella. From there, I went into, that was a, a closed brethren church. I went into some Baptist churches where we sort of did some, at the time, newer music from maybe the early 80s, mixed with some hymns. Um, and we went later when we were moving around, we went to churches that had some modern music, some some older Christian music. And one of the things I've noticed since the time I was a little boy is that people are very passionate about their choice of music in church. I'm not sure people are as discriminant in what they listen to on the radio mm-hmm. during the week, but on Sunday, people tend to have some very strong opinions as to what kind of music must or should be sung in a Christian church. In the 80s, I think there was a bit of a worship war going on as some were pulling away from the older music. And when I say older music, I'm not talking about New Testament music. I'm talking about music that was written 1,500 years, 1,800 years after the New Testament era. But in history, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's 100, 200 years old now. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about older music. Some people were pulling away from that, wanting to include in their musical repertoire some modern stuff, and it created a lot of angst, and it created a lot of battles. And I've noticed that we seem to be drifting back into that as Christian churches. I'm noticing a lot of pastors uh, and friends and even people in our church sort of asking questions about, you know, why why this style? Why not that style? Why— it's important for us to sing the old stuff or it's important for us to sing the new stuff. So I want to address that because I think it's it's on a lot of people's minds. I want this to be a productive, thoughtful conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to... F- I'm not trying to stir the hornet's nest. I'm actually trying to put the hornets back in the nest. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to light a fire. I'm just trying to encourage people to think about their views, maybe some of their statements, some of their perspectives, and to push people towards... Uh, a, a truly biblical view of Christian worship music. So I, I have no, just for the record, I have no vested interest in shaping or belittling a, another church or making broad brush stroke statements about another person's liturgical style. Um, I do have an advantage, and that is because I was born in the early 70s and I'm still alive, yeah. and I've basically been in church all my life, I... I have that that experience with the unplanned a cappella worship. I have experience in blended worship services. I have experience in hymns only churches. I have experience in with contemporary modern music. 
I've listened to Christian rap. I've listened to spoken word. I've worshipped in Canada, the United States, Mexico, Ecuador, China, Morocco, some countries in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So I do have exposure. I just happen to be that that generation that straddles. Mm-hmm. We straddle the the worship war gap. We also, and I'm old enough to remember even on a Bible translation level when everyone just read the King James and now there's a broad variety of translations. So I was just born at a time where I've seen a lot of change in this regard. So I don't actually have on a heart level a a, a preference per se to a to a style. I I value on a heart level the sound of a broad variety of musical styles. But fundamentally what I'm concerned about as a pastor is encouraging an honest assessment of biblical teaching on music and encouraging people to back off of these criticisms of style or these these very um i think over the top carte blanche statements to the fact that you know the the old music is the only good stuff all the new music is terrible or we just got into the m- new music and the old stuff is garbage that's that's not appropriate mm-hmm. it's not intelligent mm-hmm. it's not accurate and it's certainly not biblical and i would also say that in a cultural crisis like ours when the world seems to be falling apart, there is a temptation for us to retreat into a preferred past age when it comes to music or even lifestyle choices. And that can be a mistake that we, we want to we want to do battle with the forces of darkness and culture, but we shouldn't have the, the, the notion that everything that's modern is bad and everything that's old is good. We can just easily retreat into that. So I'm not opposed to tradition, but I am opposed to traditionalism yeah. when it becomes like a value for you to make sure that every the only thing I read is old stuff. The only thing I sing is old stuff. The only people I hang around with are old people or the only methods we adopt in our church are old. That's that's not appropriate. That those are some of the that was some of the the problems that Protestants fought against in the Reformation and I'll just go a little step further and say in in the Protestant Reformation, we were fighting against doctrinal impurity and doctrinal falsehood, doctrinal heresy, but we were also fighting against an ecclesiastical culture that was mired in, well, we've always done it this way kind of thinking, mm-hmm. and we need to be careful that we don't sort of become Reformed Catholics in that respect uh, by by traditionalizing our worship and liturgy to the point that we're inflexible and maybe even guilty of some legalism. So that that's kind of why I wanted to do this podcast. And I'm totally fine with people agreeing or disagreeing with some of the things I say, but I want people to think about these issues a little more clearly. And hopefully this podcast will be of assistance in that regard. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's going to be a very good discussion. Um, so maybe by way of introduction to this discussion, maybe you could highlight on a high level what are some arguments that you hear people using that kind of fuzzy the actual issue and cause unwarranted division when it comes to music? Yeah, so to preface my comments here, I want to say that I think any honest, honest discussion about worship music and worship styles and worship content does need to acknowledge something. And a lot of people feel uncomfortable acknowledging this. If you're a trained theologian and you're listening to this program, it may be difficult for you to acknowledge this as well, but I think it has to be acknowledged. 
And that is that our experience of worship in the past, whether we like it or not, has a powerful and profound effect on what we prefer in the moment. We just can't, we can't deny that. Mm-hmm. And it's, if you grew up in a, in a particular church or you just listened to a particular style of music, or even we could say listen to music in a particular language because we're largely Anglophones and we're, we, sing, we choose to sing worship songs in English in our churches for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. When you go to another culture where you hear people singing in a foreign language that you don't understand or their, their style of worship is much more exuberant or flashy, like if you're in a, an African context, it, 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 it's, it's jarring. We may appreciate it, we may even be fascinated by it, but it, it's not our experience. There's an experiential aspect to music. Mm-hmm. Music, singing uh, a song in a Christian church is not the same as listening to a sermon. Otherwise, we would, we would just do one or the other. There's a, a very experiential aspect that touches us on a heart level when we sing. And if you're, if you're not willing to admit this, I would just say to you, okay, travel the world a little bit more. Go and worship in a church, not in Canada, the United States, or the UK. Go, go worship in an African setting, and you will feel like an alien in that context because it's so different than, than what you're used to. I'm not trying to make enemies in, in making these statements, but I, I truly believe, Chris, if I have any discernment at all, I truly believe that a lot of people that are arguing for a particular kind of music along theological grounds are at least in part arguing for what they prefer experientially. And so while we want to talk about some content issues, I think it's fair for us to acknowledge, too, that some of our preferences are a result of what we have experienced and how we've been raised and the traditions we've been in. Think about it. If you're in church, and hopefully in your Christian journey, you're in church, you're in Bible studies, you're singing, you're listening to sermons, preach, you're fellowshipping with God's people, and you could count dozens, if not hundreds, of profound encounters with God, whereby God was convicting you or teaching you, and those are very real, bona fide encounters with God and times in your life when your thinking's been shaped and you've been re-energized or rebuked or encouraged. And as part of that experience, there's a particular style of music. Mm-hmm. You can't dis- disconnect those two. You're going to, if, sometimes I hear people say things like, well, I like this kind of music because it's more, it's more uh, respectful. What do you mean by that? It's, it's just, I just like it more. It's just, it's, it's more real for me. Th- those are experiential statements. Those aren't theological statements. And there's nothing wrong with having an encounter with God on an experiential level. So I just want people to, to acknowledge that. So here's some unhelpful arguments. I, I, these are things that many people are guilty of. Maybe I've been guilty of them in the past. And I, I just think we need to call them out. So unhelpful arguments would be when people just say, modern Christian music is bad. And you're like, well, why? while heretics and false teachers are producing them. A lot of them are made by these big churches, these compromised churches. By the way, let me just call call this lie out. The size of your church has absolutely nothing to do with your faithfulness. If you're a church of 10, you should be faithful to the gospel and to the call of God. If you're a church of 10,000, you should be faithful to the gospel and the call of God. But in our modern context, because we tend to concern ourselves with celebrity pastors and leaders, the larger the church, the more open they are to criticism. If there is a 
problem in that church, and there will be in every other church as well. But if there's a problem in a big church, a mega church, everybody knows about it. Mm-hmm. So to use the Matt Chandler thing, Matt Chandler, well-known pastor, he's done some things that people don't appreciate. More recently, he was sort of busted for some inappropriate texting with a woman. And everyone's like, well, that's just another proof that the mega church is corrupt. Okay. Um, how many hundreds of guys did the same thing mm-hmm. at the same period of time in churches of 50, 60, 100, 200 people and never made the news? The problem is not with the mega church. The problem is Christian sin. We do wrong. We need to constantly repent. But the bigger your name, the more you're going to be outed. And in the same way, people tend to have this negative view on the big church. If a big church is producing music, well, it must be compromised. Again, nobody notices compromise in small churches. The reason why a lot of the big churches are producing their own music is, frankly, because the smaller churches tend not to be producing their own music. One of the things that you can maybe consider, if you're listening to this, if you're really critical of a lot of modern music is write your own stuff. That's what we're doing in our church now. We're starting to encourage our people to write their own stuff. My sons have produced a couple songs recently. We just sang the first one in church called All Our Hymns. And we're going to write our own stuff. I I joke to our worship team and I say, guys, I have to write my own sermons. (laughs) 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 Write your own music. But when we're always borrowing, if you got a church that's been around for 100 years and it's never written one of its own songs, it's always borrowing other people's stuff, you might need to reconsider that. How are you contributing to the solution rather than just criticizing the problem? Mm-hmm. So old, all old music is not good and all old music is bad. You're going to have bad music that's written in the contemporary environment, and you're going to have some old hymns that have gone the way of the dodo bird. Keep in mind that we've had 150 to 350 years to vet the old stuff. So generally speaking, if you look at a a uh, hundred hymns that are still being sung, they're probably going to be fairly solid because we've weeded out the rest. In the same way, if there's hundreds and hundreds of new new songs being written in any given decade, yeah, there's a lot of them that are not going to be great. They're not going to stand the test of time, but the good ones will survive. Mm-hmm. So this notion that n- new music is bad, uh, I don't think is substantiated. And I'll give you some examples in a moment. I'm just dealing with this at a sort of 100 miles up that old music glorifies God more because it's more doctrinal. Okay, This makes me chuckle a little bit when I hear this. The old music is better. The hymns are better because they're more doctrinal. They're more reverential. They're of a higher quality. And I would say to people, okay, so are you saying that the reason why you prefer hymns is because they sound a lot like Romans or Ephesians rather than the Psalms? Yes. Okay. Are the If you take Romans and Ephesians— and the Psalms, which one of those books are the song book of the Bible? Psalms. But the Psalms don't read like Ephesians and Romans. Mm-hmm. The, the Psalms aren't as theologically, doctrinally heavy as Romans, for example, mm-hmm. where we're introduced to our soteriology and ecclesiology and hamartiology. The Psalms were a songbook used by the ancient people of God to address God. And directionally, this is a general truth. I'm trying to be I'm trying to be accurate without getting too detailed. When you read the Psalms, the direction of the Psalms are the people of God communicating to God or to one another about God. And it's very much of a from earth to heaven 
kind of direction. Whereas the rest of the scriptures, which while there are songs in various books of the Bible, are primarily not sung scripture, come across more as God speaking truth through his prophets and apostles to us. That doesn't mean that the Psalms and and books of Romans are more biblical than Psalms, or I should say that Ephesians and Romans are more biblical than Psalms, but the Psalm, whereas God speaks, 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 speaks to us through the whole of Scripture, what the Psalms do through song largely is help us to communicate back to God. So in order for us to do that, we're not teaching God doctrine. We are declaring on a level doctrine to one another. The Psalms aren't as theologically heavy. They're not as didactic. They're not going through extended teaching on the nature of salvation, the nature of election, the nature of sovereignty, the the end times, all these things that we glean from other books of the Bible. But they are inspired scripture, and they help us to communicate what we've learned from God to God and to the people of God. And then others would just say, well, then the, the middle ground was the best, blended worship. Well, again, the problem with blended worship is it's innately divisive, And it's a bit formulaic in that it's like, well, let's just bring them both together. Let's keep in mind that from from the perspective of all of history, everything we sing in the current church is actually relatively new. Mm -hmm. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. It's a thousand and a half years removed from the New Testament era. So it's all relatively new Mm -hmm. from some of the older stuff like Luther's A Mighty Fortress right up to hymns written in the 1850s, it's still relatively new. And maybe instead of thinking of it as like an old versus new, uh, we need to think of it as just as an extended period of time within which God has used some godly people, and sometimes even some not so godly people, to produce music that we can sing as an adequate expression of our belief in God, our allegiance to God, our confession to God, our lament, and so forth and so on. Mm. So I, I tend... I guess what I want, where I want to sort of land is, I think we need to spend more time thinking about content, and when I say content, not just saying, well, does it sound a lot like Romans, but content, does it actually sound a lot like the songs that were sung in the Bible, which largely are the Psalms, and not get so hung up on style or dates, where it's old, new's better, or old's better, or blended's the way to go. I think that's a little bit reductionistic. Mm-hmm. So again, that's just sort of uh, unhelpful arguments when people just lean one way or the other. It's it's just not a helpful, it doesn't advance the conversation in my viewpoint. Mm-hmm. I, I too have gone through a little bit of a, well, growing up in a church that was more conservative uh, in terms of conservative, traditional maybe in music, um, but being challenged over the years to think what you mentioned there with experiences tied to those songs, um, you know, the song that was sung at my baptism has special meaning to me. I love singing it because it was tied to my baptism. Well, right. It's normal, right? Yeah. But then a uh, professor challenging on the idea of, you know, do you, are you worshiping the Lord through that or are you worshiping sentimentality, becoming really sentimental? You like certain things just because of what they're tied to and experiences, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, um, so diving a little deeper, we want to address those common arguments and offer some points to each side. So maybe you can walk us through and dig right into this. What are those common arguments Mm -hmm. in detail? Yeah, so first let's acknowledge 
once again, that everything we sing in the in the current Christian church, I don't care if you're a Presbyterian, you're a Christian Reformed, Dutch Reformed, Baptist Church, Bible Church, non-denominational, everything we sing, to the best of my knowledge, is hundreds of years removed from the New Testament era and even more removed from the Old Testament era mm-hmm. when it comes to wor- worship music. Now, what I mean by that is in style or in substance or both. So very few churches, there are some, are literally singing the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And if they are singing the Psalms, they're singing a translation of them. So they're not singing the Psalms in Hebrew. They're singing the Psalms in, in a particular era of English. And so in that respect, it's we just need to acknowledge that our music is not, and I use this in quotes, strictly biblical. Our, our current music, whether you're singing stuff from 1995, 2020, or 1850, it's not strictly biblical. So let's not worship our worship music, because it's not the Bible. Again, unless you're singing from the Psalms, your our worship the, the hymns in a typical hymn book mm-hmm. or a repertoire of modern music isn't the Bible. So we're not going to worship a particular era of music. Mm-hmm. Secondly, as with sermons, and again, unless you're singing the scriptural passages like the Psalms in original languages, as with sermons, all Christian music, except for singing the Psalms, are man's best attempts to express or teach the substance of our faith in Psalms. And you you listen to some good sermons, you listen to some bad sermons, you listen to some sermons in between. So we open the Bible as preachers, we read a text, we exposit it. But reading the text and expositing, and I'm not the same thing, the authority ultimately lies in the text, not in our exposition, because we can err in our exposition, we can err in our application, we can err in our illustration, we can even have crummy structure that doesn't help to carry the clarity of Scripture to the people of God. So I would never put my sermon on par with the Scripture. My sermon is my best attempts to explain, explore, exposit, apply the Word of God to the people of God. And I see... Songs is the same way. Songs in and of themselves are not perfect, and they're certainly not the Word of God. They're our best attempts to express or teach the substance of our faith to God or to the people of God. And uh, the third thing I wanted to mention is if if I were a, um, let's say, a Psalms-only guy, mm-hmm. so I just want to yeah. maybe confront those that are Psalms-only, not not to cause problems, I'm just going to stretch your thinking a little bit. I know some folks that are Psalms only. I only sing the Psalms. Okay, do you, when you preach then, do you just read Scripture? Well, no. So you you feel comfortable reading Scripture and then expositing it and explaining it and, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, then why is it such a problem to sing Christian music, which are essentially, they're not sermons, but Song, songs, Christian songs or Christian hymns are essentially sung sermons in that respect. They are, we, we look at Scripture, we wrestle with it, we explore it, we try to understand it, and then we write music that reflects our understanding of what of who God is and how he works and his redemptive history and how we should confess and lament our sins and so forth. So... I, I have no problem with someone 
singing the Psalms or singing scripture passages. I'd like to see more of that, frankly. But if you can preach from God's word for 45 minutes, and you're not just spending 45 minutes reading scripture, then I'm not sure what the big hangup is with singing songs that are a reflection of biblical truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth, I think we need to think a little bit more clearly about this older music is intrinsically better argument. Frankly, I think that's hogwash. And again, while I love a lot of the old songs because I grew up on them, I know them. I know them better than a lot of people do. I know the older stuff. I have no problem with it. I think it's great. It's been helpful and informative in my own life. Again, if we objectively assess the reasons why people make that that claim, I don't think they hold water. And there's many reasons for this. As I mentioned before, they've been vetted for 150 years. If I passed you a thousand sermons that I've preached and I gave you 150 years to vet them, there'd be a lot that you'd throw in the trash can and there'd be a few that you might keep. And future generations might not know about the whole thousand, but they might know about those 10 that you kept because we've had time to weed them out. So let's be patient. Let's be critical in our assessment. If we're going to use some modern music, which I think we should be, Let's be critical in our assessment of the good stuff and the bad stuff. Let's throw the bad stuff in the circular file, but let's not make the mistake of just saying it's all bad. It's all bad. That's like saying all young people are punks. They're not. (laughs) Many of them are because in our youth, we tend to do a lot of silly things, but you can't just say, well, it's the teenager's fault, right? It's, it's, it's It's an overstatement. Again, I would say that many of our uh, affections towards older styles of music, or even our affections towards newer styles of music or newer musical songs, is because we're super familiar with them and they're intimately tied to our worship of God. W- the reality is, whenever we sing a new song, which we're called to in Scripture, in the Psalms, whenever we sing a new song, there is a, an adjustment period. It's foreign at first; it doesn't grab us. Mm-hmm. But when we've sang it a lot and we've had an experience with, coupled with preaching and fellowship and confession, it, it takes on a lot of meaning. So let me give you an illustration of this. Suppose, for example, that we introduced a new song to our listeners, <clears throat> and I'm not going to sing it, but I, let me just, <laughs> I just wrote out some lyrics here real quick. And, and I, just really quick, like I wrote these out in like three minutes, but just listen to the lyrics of this song I wrote. God is like a castle. He's like a brick wall that can't be pushed over. He helps us in the storms of life. Even when evil seems to be winning, the devil hates us and wants to kill us. He's very sly and crafty. In fact, he's the greatest of our earthly enemies. Now, would that grab anybody really? Does, does, that, does that do anything for you? You're like, eh, you're not a very good lyricist. Okay, you're, you're right. But is there anything I said in there that's not true? It's like, no, no, that's, that's biblical, that's true. Okay, so what if I took the, the, the exact same thoughts from those lyrics and I rewrote them? So I'm gonna communicate the exact same truth, but I'm gonna put them in different words and I'll deliver, to the, deliver them to you this way. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work his woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth 
is not his equal. Now, everybody knows that's Luther's A Mighty Fortress is our God song. What I did was I just took that and just quickly rewrote it without using the words to sort of hide the hymn. Mm -hmm. But I've said the exact same thing in two different ways. One grabs you, one kind of arrests you because you can remember those times in church where it's like, a mighty fortress. And we all sang out in song and there was this profound experience of connectedness to our history. And we think of Luther and the Reformation. Nobody was thinking about that with my weak attempt to parrot it in modern language, but the content is exactly the same. And this is what happens, which people aren't aware of. They, when they sing older music, again, nothing wrong with it. There's so much experience and history tied to it that it almost heightens and increases their veneration of it. And then when a new song comes along, they're like, oh, that's, that's not very doctrinally sound. It's like, really? Is it not doctrinally sound or you just don't have any experience with it? It has no history to it. It's saying the exact same thing. Hmm. So it's, it's, more, it's more about, for many people, it's more about the familiarity than anything else. I'll, I'll give you uh, lyrics from a, a modern song just written in the last few years. And this is a song called Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Is this not true? So listen to this song. It's just not as known as a mighty fortress. But the writer says, I was a wretch. I remember who I, I was. I was lost. I was blind. I was running out of time. Anything in that erroneous? No, it's true. Sin separated. The breach was far too wide. But from the far side of the chasm, you held me in your sight. That's a very reformed statement, by the way. When, when we look at those lyrics written just a few years ago, we're like, yeah, th those are true, but they don't have the benefit of having been sung for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, so they don't grip people as much. Now, what's interesting about that particular statement, that particular psalm, is it was written by a modern Christian singer called Charity Gale, and it's a good song. I've listened to it many times. But this is, this is one of the things that modern Christians will often say, but do you know who Charity Gale is? I'm like, yeah, a little bit. Did you know that her parents are co-pastors of a oneness Pentecostal church that get the Trinity wrong? I'm like, oh, okay, so you look it up. Oh, yeah, it's right. This is an Orthodox song, but she's a oneness Pentecostal, apparently. At least her parents are oneness Pentecostals. So some would say we have a responsibility to throw that song in the trash can. The song might be good, but there's some spurious doctrine attached to the songwriter's church, so we throw it in the trash can. <clears throat> well, that might be so, and based on Romans 14, your conscience might dictate, look, we're only going to sing orthodox music that's written by people that we also know are orthodox and square up with our theology. Okay, then you better throw a mighty fortress as our God in the trash can too, in its English form. Because while Luther wrote the German form of our, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Mighty Fortress is Our God was translated into English by a Unitarian transcendentalist, a heretic. Isn't that interesting? I did not know that. And yet we sing that. So the point is, is we, I, I think there's a lot of folks that are <clears throat> loaded for bear, and we don't actually vet the origin of our hymns to the same degree that we vet the origin of our modern music. Now, again, I think this is a conscience issue because I do concern myself with this. Where do I draw the line? Do I vet not only every song, which we do, but do I vet every artist? 
Do I vet the church those artists grew up in? Do I vet the parents of those artists? And if I'm consistent in that, do I open, I use the English Standard Version of the Bible to preach from, do I do research on, well, who, who are the translators? They may have given us a good translation of the Bible, but have I actually researched the backstories of all the men or women that were used to translate this particular version of the Bible? When we order Sunday school curriculum, and many churches do for their, their um, young people, their children's programs, do we vet the background of the publishers? Do we vet the background of all the writers? No, we don't. We don't do that. <clears throat> so I think there's some inconsistency here, and that one of the arguments people often use, and again, I think this is a Romans 14 thing, because there are some songs that we refuse to sing in our church that I think are good songs just because they come from artists that are just way over the top and make ludicrous statements, and I find them to be a distraction to worship. But if I was going to say, look, we're going to, without fail, vet every artist that produces every song, we want to know all their doctrine, all their background, then to be consistent, I'm just po pointing this out, to be consistent, we should be vetting every resource that we use in our churches, from the, the Bible translations we use to the publishers that publish our hymn books, and on and on and on and on. And I think most people would say that would be pretty exhausting. Mm -hmm. You'd have to hire three full-time staff members just to get that that job done. So I, I think we need to maybe <clears throat> concern ourselves with the artist and the background of the artist, but I don't think that should be elevated over and above necessarily a, an evaluation of what is it we're actually singing here? Is this orthodox? So this is an issue of conscience, and ultimately it's up to the elders of a church to sort through that and arrive at a conclusion, knowing that they will be held accountable to the Lord for their decisions. Mm -hmm. what, as, just as I'm thinking about this, because I've had these discussions with people as well, they usually tie back to, one, there's financial resources going to the author of the song. So, you know, somebody makes a, a, a very... Uh, interesting comparison they said if Planned Parenthood wrote a worship song would you sing it right because you'd be right. sending money to Planned Parenthood right um, so the finances issue maybe you could speak to that and then also um, the idea of this this music leads people to false doctrine so uh, many people are concerned with you know um, let's pick I don't know okay so Charity Gale maybe it leads or leads people to Charity Gale and leads them to oneness Pentecostal theology um, non-Trinitarian theology. Those are the two concerns right. that I, I hear most often voiced. Mm -hmm. What would you have to say to those? Well, first of all, we, we have to understand that there's a lot of people out there writing music, and they're going to they're gonna range everywhere from mildly biblically illiterate right through to full-on false teachers. So that there is a range. Mm -hmm. You don't call everything heresy. Okay, certain things are heresy, but people throw that word around. Oh, you have a difference of opinion, differences of opinion on me than baptism. You're a heretic. No, you're not. Mm -hmm. That's not a creedal issue. That's not something that denies the apostolic creed or the historic creedal statements of the Christian faith. You have a different opinion than someone on women in ministry, which is a which is a, a pretty significant issue. It's still not a an issue of heresy. It could be false teaching. It could be you got it wrong. Your distinctives are wrong. But we, we need to be a little careful not to throw everything into the heresy basket. Mm -hmm. So if if you're, let's say, non-charismatic and you're like, I don't, we don't listen to music. I'm, a, I'm in a reformed church. We don't listen to music from charismatics because they're heretics. Really? Are they heretics? Do they believe in the Trinity? Or likewise, you're in a charismatic church. We don't listen to those Calvinists. You know, they're heretics. That's not heresy. 
like we have to be careful how we use that word. So when we're evaluating a song, you're going to get music written by everything from someone that's just kind of mildly ignorant and it might be reflecting their lyrics right through to someone that's full on heretical. Now, strangely, just as a, a an aside, there are times when somehow somebody that has a pretty wacky doctrine manages to produce a pretty solid music. But uh, I, I would say that, and this is just my opinion, okay? So I would say it's probably a good idea to shy away from singing music that is written by musicians or churches that are super controversial, that are known to consistently peddle falsehood, that are always in the news, because your people will be distracted by that. It's a distraction. Even if the music happens to be good, the, the lyrics are good, they're singable, you like them, it might be a good idea to throttle back on some of the more extreme fringe groups. Where I don't have the energy or time is to literally vet every single person's background to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I would also say that if I want to be super consistent, and I don't think any of us can claim to be absolutely consistent in these in these um, situations, is again, if we are going to take the view that we only sing music from people that are squ- square up with us in terms of theology and lifestyle, then I would just press a little bit and say, okay, I understand that. I get that. I I wish I lived in a world where I could be afforded that. But if you're going to do that, then stop shopping at any establishment, stop banking at any establishment that supports, for example, the LGBTQ community agenda. Stop it. Uh, Stop reading from English versions of the Bible. If there's one translator or one person on the publishing committee that's not a Christian, that's not orthodox, that's somehow financially benefiting from it, if it was printed at a factory that is godless and heathen and supports godless agenda, you shouldn't be supporting that either. So as a principle, yeah, I don't want to unnecessarily give my money to people that aren't godly Christians, but I'm not sure that's possible to do consistently and habitually in a fallen world. With regard to, so let's say someone sang a song from a church that's a little wonky on some of these things. The song's good, but they're a little bit wonky, and people start listening to that music, and then they start listening to those sermons, and then they kind of get led astray. Well, yeah, that that can be a concern. But as pastors, our people are being exposed to the potential of falsehood all the time. And I think it's our responsibility to help people to see through the lies and the falsehood and to be able to hear error when they experience it regardless of the source. So if if your people are going to be led so if you're let's say you sing a song in church and it's a it's a great song, got good lyrics, your people Google it and they find out unbeknownst to you or known to you that it's connected to someone that's not really orthodox in their doctrine. I, I'm not convinced that that's going to lead my people astray if, having sung that Orthodox song in church, they're also listening to 45 minutes of instruction from me every week. So it's a consideration. I think that's a more of a wisdom issue. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but it is a consideration. But what I want to, what I want to, and, and this is going to stretch people. I actually want to encourage more churches that are concerned about these issues to write their own stuff. That's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So we do use music from others for the most part, and we try to be very selective in what we sing and what we don't sing. It doesn't have to sound like Romans three. It might sound like Psalm three, but so in other words, it doesn't necessarily, the goal of our music is not, we're going to find the most doctrinally weighty stuff we can possibly get our hands on. No, we don't do that because that's not demanded in scripture. We do that in sermons, but the, but songs aren't better just because they're, they have three more doctrinal issues contained than the song next to it. But people need to, people need to, um, be thoughtful about these issues, but I also think we need to we need to consider the consistency of these arguments that we often apply strictly to modern music, and we don't apply apply to other Christian resources or even the businesses or banks that we might support. Mm-hmm. I think what you touched on there is a matter of wisdom in terms of the shepherd leading the or your under shepherd, right? The pastor leading the flock, and knowing what are the stumbling blocks for your flock. So, you know, if I lived three blocks down from the the church with false theology pumping out great songs, I probably wouldn't be singing those songs because I'm three blocks away from them. And it's impossible for people to separate that idea. Like if they were down Spring Garden Road here in Windsor. Sure. Well, you know what, even as a parent, so when my kids were younger, let's say I wanted my kids to play hockey or baseball or whatever, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I want them to learn the sport. I want them to enjoy life and excel as athletes and learn the discipline. But not everybody on that team's a Christian. In fact, maybe none of them are. And maybe there's, maybe the coach is an atheist or goes to a heretical church. Most parents would still enroll their kid in the league unless there was some insane conduct on behalf of the coach or the, the 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 athletic staff, knowing that, okay, they're 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 learning the sport, they're growing in certain skills, but in order to do so, there's sort of a necessary exposure to people who may be off base. But we we talk about those things. We we help our kids to process. We help them to, you know, eat the meat and spit out the bones. We 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 assess what they've heard and what they've been taught. So I, I think I just not sure how you could consistently say, okay, in my life, w- I don't sing any music that's in any way, sh- shape, or form even remotely associated with bad people. When in the rest of life you don't do that, it's kind of impossible actually to live with in such a way that you're never supporting and never in any way, shape, or form associating with something that could potentially be a little off base. So I know this is a controversial issue. I, I, I've i been doing ministry long enough, and I think I know people long enough that there's probably a few folks even listening to this bristling a little bit. Okay, that's fine. Um, Romans 14, we have differences of conscience on these issues, but just think about what I've said. I, th- I think there's some truth to it that might be, might be worth considering. Mm-hmm. So let's shift gears and let's promote a what what do you think are some biblical principles that should guide Christian worship? Well, I think the Psalms 
need to be considered more as the as a base for our music because they are the song songs of the Bible. There's no Psalm chapter one, Psalm chapter two, Psalm chapter three. There's Psalm one, Psalm two, Psalm three. There's 150 Psalms. They're all songs. And those songs, well, I love Romans, of course. I love Ephesians and I love preaching from Revelation, but those aren't songs. And from those scriptures, could we get good songs? Of course, but they're not the songbook of the Bible. That's not their intention. The Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. And there are some that would say, therefore, we should only sing those 150. Okay, fine. There are others who would say, no, it's it's a model. And I would take the view that it's more of a model, just like when I, again, when I'm preaching Romans 3, I'm not just reading Romans 3 and closing my Bible. I'm expounding upon it. I'm fleshing it out for people. I think using the Psalms as a basis to write music. I'd like to see more of that take place because they are the songbook of the Bible. And when you look at the Psalms, what you notice is there's Psalms of lament where people are confessing their sins. And so why are we not writing more music whereby people confess their sins to God? They they are experiential in that they talk about, the writers will talk about their own transgressions, their own sorrow, their own persecution, their own challenges, their own doubt. And then they find comfort and hope in the sovereignty of God, the kingship of God. So there is plenty of room in our music for declaring our experiences to God. That's not unbiblical. Mm-hmm. So it's it's wrong-headed to think that no good music is just producing a series of doctrinal statements. It's just all creedal. They sound like the creeds. We affirm this, we affirm this, we affirm this, we affirm this. That's what music should be like. No, it shouldn't. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are very experiential. They are, I, we experienced this, we experienced that, I did this, I confess in this area. That kind of language is found in the Psalms. They're also There's also lots of Psalms that are Thanksgiving Psalms meaning that they they can be invitational, so they can be thanking the Lord, and in the process of thanking the Lord, inviting people to worship him. So Psalm 33 would be an example of this, where it says, shout to the Lord, O you righteous. So it's it's inviting people to shout, to raise your voice, to bring the decibels up, and to be exuberant and passionate about God, to be joyful about God. I'm not suggesting there's a specific cultural way that that has to be put into practice, but if you if you feel uncomfortable about people shouting in worship, I understand that. It can be a distraction, but you can't argue it's unbiblical. People raise their voices in biblical worship. Uh, some of the psalms are what we call kingship psalms or enthronement psalms, where they're just declaring and elevating the grandeur and holiness of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and our songs should include that kind of language. There's confessional psalms. In Psalm 32, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you. In in Psalm 51, we have David's famous confession after his sin with Bathsheba, which interestingly, and I think this is deliberate, David wrote a whole bunch of psalms, and then there's this extended break in the psalms where other writers' psalms are included, and and then we get back into David's psalms in Psalm 51 and following, and I think that's a deliberate arrangement to show that while he was living in sin, there was silence. His worship was truncated. His worship was reduced. But the first step 
to reigniting your worship, if you've sinned, is confession. Mm -hmm. And so he confesses his sins to God. Then we have these Psalms of Ascent where they, they're calling people out of the villages and out of the pastures, and they're, they're ascending the holy hill of Jerusalem. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. There's Psalms of Wisdom. There's Psalms of Imprecation where we are calling upon God to judge the nations, to um, deal with our enemies. So a few principles that I have gleaned from the Psalms, and by the way, these aren't all original to me. Some of them are things I've just sort of thought up, and others are from other teachers or instructors or people that I've been exposed to. But the direction of our psalms should be, or I should say our songs, should be toward God. So if you're used to just singing songs about God, you just sing about God, you just reiterate the sermon in a song, I would say your worship is not strictly biblical yet. There should be declarations of doctrinal truth in our music. But there should also be plenty of situations where we are using like I, you language in our music. I love you, Lord. We should be able to say that in our music. So a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That's true. That's a declarative statement about God, which is awesome. But it's also awesome for a psalmist to say, I extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and I have not let my and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I I cried to you for help and you have healed me. This is a direct address to God. We're not just singing about him. We're not just declaring a truth, but we're actually comfortable enough to directly speak to God. Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Now, if we are singing about God, we should also understand that it should serve in part as a testimony to our fellow worshipers. So when we do sing in in a collective, in a, in a congregation, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Notice, a mighty fortress is our God. Our. That's plural. That's we. So we're, we're singing to one another. We're testifying to one another. And that's fair game in biblical worship as well. Mm-hmm. Even in Psalm 23, it's not, God, you have guided me beside still waters. It's he guides me beside still waters. The, the nature of the language there is he's declaring that to his listeners, mm-hmm. that God has guided him through still water. So it's a testimonial, he's testifying. So good Christian music, regardless of style, should have opportunities for people to testify to what God has done or what God continues to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's step on some toes here. What were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say, Psalm 23, you just reminded me, it's so neat because it testifies first, but then it does go yes. to directly addressing God yeah. further on, which is just, it's so neat. And right? by the way, there there is a pattern to a lot of the Psalms where, for instance, in in some of the Psalms, we have a person starting out, they're very disoriented, they're confused, they're not thinking clearly, and they just kind of go off, and they're talking about their challenges and trials and difficulties. And then at some point, it's almost like they pause, and they're reminded of God's lordship, and they're reoriented, and they're thrown back into a life of ministry and service. 
in those Psalms, what's fascinating is there's usually not an answer given as to why they suffered, but they find an encounter with God is enough to reorient them. So it's like, why am I suffering, Lord? And we don't get an answer, but God shows up and we're like, you know what? We don't really care why. We just know the who that is going to guide us through. And that's enough for us. So that's a beautiful pattern we see in the Psalms as well. It's awesome. Yeah. Okay. I'm now curious. What are you going to say about stepping on toes? (laughs) Well, I want to talk about repetition in music. So I, I also find this interesting when people will make blanket statements. One of the things I don't like about modern music, it's repetitive. And they make little, they actually, they actually mock it. You know, all these new modern music, it's just like, I love you, Jesus. 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 It's so flaky, they say. It's so bad. You know, repetition. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I think you need to be a little bit careful about that. You could actually be guilty of blasphemy or sacrilege in saying something like that. And I'm going to give you a, a clear example of this. The Bible actually advocates at times for repetition in worship. That's biblical. So don't be too quick to write something off because there's a lot of repetition in it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're singing ooh la la la, ooh la la la, ooh la 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 50 times and it's meaningless and there's nothing to that, yeah, that's a problem in music. Meaningless, mindless repetition is a problem, but repetition is biblical. Read Psalm 136 yeah. after every line. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. What, did you not get it the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, as you have to keep repeating it over and over again? It's like, oh, this is boring. You know, this is his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, I get it, writer. Okay, chill out. What, God uses repetition to remind us of truths that we need to really chew on and mull over. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be careful about that. By the way, even in hymnology, there's a chorus that we generally repeat over and over and over again in the psalm, in the song. Keep going back and forth between song and song. In the song. So there's nothing wrong with repetition. Don't be so quick to chastise a song because it is, in your view, too much repetition in it. You should chastise it if it's mindless drivel. But don't chastise it just because there's repetition in it. The Lord uses repetition to often remind us of remind us of truths and God is honored when we repeatedly say to him that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever endures forever endures forever mm-hmm. yeah that's good I just as you say that I think often tied to that is people are concerned that modern worship and we'll maybe use modern worship as an example and water, modern worship leaders can sometimes become emotionally manipulative what would you say to that in terms of, because we know that that is a possibility. People can manipulate emotions to ride on a high that they're not actually worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping a feeling or something like that. How would you dissect that if somebody was to say, that's where modern worship leads is emotional manipulation and we don't want that? Well, you know what? I, I just think that's a false category. You can manipulate people through old stuff, new stuff, sermons, books, whatever you want. What we do in our church is we teach our musicians the difference between performance, which we avoid, and serving with excellence. Mm-hmm. We teach people the value of making sure you're right with the Lord when you step into the pulpit or you're up front leading worship. We, we focus on the heart 
and the mind of the worship leader and make sure that they're squared up with the Lord. We take times for take time to instruct and pray with our leaders. So we're not opposed to emotion. We're emotional beings. And as worship leaders, we, we're okay with emotional expression. We're okay with guiding people in their emotions. Look, there's a lot of preachers out there that put on a show when they preach. The old mm-hmm. preacher's whine, it's kind of nauseating. It's a learned behavior where in the foyer, they're just chatting with you in the same way that you and I are chatting right now. But when they get up front, they're like, dear heavenly father, we beseech thee. And they sound like some medieval poet when they're praying or preaching. It's learned behavior. It may be authentic or it may be inauthentic, but it does have an effect on shaping people's view of what it means to communicate with God. And usually it's unhelpful. Mm-hmm. when people have this weird notion that when I talk to God, I got to change the cadence of my voice mm-hmm. or I got to use a different uh, kind of language. You'll hear brothers who you know, love the Lord. I'm not trying to criticize them, but just kind of be aware of it, who in everyday life say you, but as soon as they pray, they say thee, thou. Mm-hmm. It's like they, sh- they, sh- they change their language when they uh, pray. And it does sort of give off vibes of lack of authenticity. I'm not suggesting that that's the motive, but it kind of give off, it can give off those kind of vibes. Now, there are worship leaders, I've seen this, and if we see it in our church, we kind of get on them about it, who without fully knowing it, maybe have come out of a different context, when they are up front, let's say leading in song, they sort of put on a different persona. Yep. It's normally not deliberate. It's it's a subconscious thing. They put on like a different persona. So that's part of our instruction and development of our music leaders, our worship leaders, is that we want to be authentic. We want to be real. We don't want to deliberately manipulate people, but we also don't want to want to um, guide people away from authentic Christian worship by just being thoughtless about the way we express ourselves as worship leaders as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that if you if you understand that people who are leading your worship should they don't necessarily need to be elders, but they need to they need to meet a high spiritual standard in your church. And if you get those kind of people, that may mean that you don't pick the very best guitar player, drummer, or organist in your church. You pick the third best. Now we, we still want people to play skillfully to the Lord. It's not a free-for-all. You know, I've been playing the guitar for two days. Can I lead worship because I just really love Jesus? No. You need to become skillful at your art in order to not be a distraction. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is, is it, it's an error to pick the very best musician if that very best musician is not walking closely with the Lord. So the heart of the person is important, but also instructing them on how to lead worship in an authentic way way, to not be a poser, to not be a fake, to not be inauthentic, to not manipulate people, it's super critical. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that, that's, what I would, yeah. that's what I would say to that question. That's really helpful. Yeah. Now, at our church, we have a little bit of a structure to our worship. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, and this is something that we've benefited from um, other churches over the years and kind of adapted. So if we use the Psalms as sort of our guide. We know in the Psalms there are 
testimonial invitational psalms. I've commented on a couple of those. There are psalms that are calling people to ascend the hill. There are psalms that bring people into the the temple and, and worship. And so we see that sort of as a, a bit of a, a guide or principle to direct our worship. So what, what we like to do in our worship is, for example, for example, in the old days, if a pastor might be preaching on the topic of faith, the worship leader might call and they might say, okay, what are you preaching on this week, pastor? I'm preaching on faith. Okay, well, we're going to go pick four songs that have the word faith in it. We're going to have a thematic service. It's all about faith this week. And that's how many of us kind of grew up. We don't do that. Uh, what we do is we acknowledge that people are coming into church, into worship, disoriented, distracted, they just dropped the kid off the nursery, maybe they got into a car, car fender bender that week, or uh, maybe they got pulled over by the police on the way to church. By the way, true story, I got pulled over uh, in front of my church when I was about 21, no <laughs> when I was going to a, a youth group function <laughs> to serve as a leader. <laughs> I think I like begged the cop, can we just like pull around the corner? <laughs> and I think he let me, but it was kind of embarrassing <laughs> people from the church to be looking out. Um, so people come in with all those distractions. So early in this, in our worship service, what we tend to do is we tend to sing s- songs that are invitational in nature, like inviting people to come to worship, you know, come let us worship the Lord type of music, which is, you know, very a very psalmic idea. And then as we, uh, you know, are sort of ascending the holy hill, there's about 15 psalms of ascent in the Psalter. So there's that, there's that pattern of ca- calling people as they're ascending, because Jerusalem is in an, an elevated place. It's on a hill, the, the holy hill, Zion. When people are ascending that holy hill, we use songs that sound more like songs of ascent where we're testifying to one another. So we're inviting, then testifying to one another as we're drawing closer and closer to the Lord. And then we, um, you know, we have Psalms in there that like Psalm 99 that declares the, the greatness of God and then to the people of God and then declares it to God. So we want, we want songs that are declaring to God his grandeur, his worth, his majesty, his redemptive work in history, but also declaring it to one another. But ultimately where we want to lead in our worship is we want people to get to a point where they're actually singing to God. Mm-hmm. And so before we preach, we we like to have a song in there that is a song that ascribes worth to God that really is like a you know holy 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 are you type song um an example of this would be psalm 29 where it says ascribe to the lord o heavenly beings ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory to his name worship the lord in the splendor of holiness now that that is sort of still a bit invitational but we would maybe pick a song that takes it to the next level still where we're singing Lord, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are our Savior. You are our Master. We surrender to you. We confess our sins to you. We want people to feel comfortable not just singing about God, but singing to God, actually focused in an undistracted way on him. And we're not trying to manipulate people in doing that. We're guiding 
just like in a, a sermon, you guide people. You don't start off by parsing a Greek word. You generally have some sort of introductory comments. You introduce the text. You read the scriptures. You start to expound it. There's a sequence and flow to a sermon that's deliberate, that's taking people from not knowing what you're going to talk about to understanding scripture and considering the application to life, and then a, a benedictory address that helps them to realize that God is with them and God is going to bless them and his face is going to shine upon them and they're catapulted back into a, a week of service and, and worship. So there's a sequence to that. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we, found that to, we found that to be quite helpful. Uh, we do sing uh, in our own language. So we want to make sure that when we're choosing music that it it contains English words that people understand. The English language changes over time, so we're not opposed to older music, but it has to be music that people understand. Otherwise, we might as well be singing in Spanish. Mm-hmm. If we're going to sing in medieval English and no one's really going to understand it or understand aspects of it, why don't we just sing in Spanish or French? So we, we want the, the lyrics to be doctrinally accurate we want them to be experiential because the Psalms are experiential. Mm-hmm. We want them to be vertical, pointing people not just to one another throughout the whole service, but to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, want, we want, of course, our music to be squared up with the conventions that govern music. The music of, let's say, 10th century Israel, we don't have any recordings of it, obviously, mm-hmm but would probably sound radically different than the music of Luther's day or the music of our own. That's just the reality. And so we want our music to be done in a way that reflects the conventions of modern music. I think that's just being mindful of your audience and kind of having a missionary's heart where you want to be be able to adapt to the, the culture of the time in an appropriate way. And we want to be faithful to God. We're not trying to be faithful to a particular style. Mm-hmm. And we certainly aren't trying to be faithful to a particular era. But we do want to be faithful to the Word of God. And so I think the Psalms provide a lot of great information and modeling for how we should be worshiping uh, the Lord. I suspect too, Chris, this is kind of where I'll end, that in the eternal kingdom, the way we worship and the sound of our music might be a little different than what we're used to today. No way. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. And um, so we need to continue to think through the our theology of worship, but let's not make the error of being too cookie cutter about it and just saying, well, you know, this era from this particular culture is the best ever and everything else stinks. And if we don't teach our kids the old hymns, they're not going to grow in the faith. Really? Really? You actually believe that? Uh, I don't think it's true. And while there's a benefit to being aware of our history, where does that stop? We're not introducing our kids to music from the 8th century because we wouldn't even understand the language of it. Let's make sure that we're helping people to worship the Lord today and if that means integrating music from past generations or from the present, great. Make sure it squares up with scripture. Make sure it's robustly biblical. We do need to concern ourselves with uh, the backstory to the writers, 
but I don't think we need to make that the the overriding uh, purpose. And I'll say it again, if you're not doing it already, if you have a lot of opinions on Christian worship, don't just be someone that criticizes, contribute to the solution. Mm -hmm. If you're going to criticize, I want to start seeing some of your music. I want you to start writing music. I want your church to start producing music that you think is usable. Now, many people would be reluctant to do that because then you're going to be open to criticism. Exactly, I know. <laughs> Someone's it, always going to find a, a misspeak in your yeah. your, your your lyrics. But um, we're excited about what the Lord is doing in our church, and mm -hmm. um, the Lord is certainly drawing me closer to Him through many of our worship leaders. I'm thankful for the way they testify to me, and they lead our people in worship, and I, I know they love the Lord. Mm -hmm. And if they don't love the Lord or they they fall into the the pattern of a pattern of sin or they they're starting to perform or the person we see on the stage is not the person we see in the pew when they're not leading worship we deal with that mm -hmm. because we want our people to worship the Lord in a pure and undefiled way and we're all learning we're never gonna, we're not perfect about this you know we're all learning we're all developing we're all growing but um hopefully this opens the door for some good meaningful dialogue and understanding that will, you know, advance collectively, advance not just an opinion, but advance God's heart for the church. And that is that we would be a generation of worshipers that love him um, with all of our heart, soul, body, and strength. So I think that's where I'll wrap it up. That's good. Well, I know that uh, what I appreciate about what you've said today, it has a high degree of intentionality behind it. We're not just being flippant about worship. We're being very thoughtful God glorifying. We talk around here about being a vertical church, seeking God's glory above all. Um, and so that's just abundantly clear. Hopefully that's been a blessing to our listeners, a reminder to our listeners that you can find this podcast in a few different places. If you follow Aaron on social media, he posts a link to our Podbean uh, streaming of this. It's also on the CJXC radio app. Uh, and so you can find that uh, if you type it in, Canada's Constant Christian Companion. And it's also on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. And so make sure to download it from one of those spots, rate it, subscribe to it, comment on it, do all the things that help us to get it in front of more people. And that would be a blessing. And then, Lord willing, we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.